Welcome to the Dense City Podcast, a show that discusses academic articles and books with the researchers who write them. I'm your host, Becca Mares. On today's episode, we're chatting to an assistant professor in the School of Urban and Regional Planning at Ryerson University. Her research and teaching agendas are shaped by her journey across design, planning, and social policy over the past 15 years, both as a scholar and as a practitioner. In her scholarship, she examines the role of planning policy and law in the marginalization of some communities, especially indigenous peoples and immigrants. Please welcome Dr. Magdalena Uguarte. Thank you so much, Becca, for inviting me. Uh, I'm really happy to be here and to yeah share with the audience a bit about my work. And we're so happy to have you here today, Magda. Um, today, we're going to be discussing your paper entitled Ethics, Discourse, or Rights, a discussion about a decolonizing project in planning in the Journal of Planning Literature. So how about you start by just explaining your motivation behind this research in the first place? Yeah, sure. Um, well, to be very honest with you, this started as a course paper. So I was starting my mm. PhD and um, I was taking uh, an elective that mm. focused on um, indigenous planning and critical perspectives uh, around planning and indigenous peoples. And then as someone who was coming from policy and from design more than planning itself, I was really, well, curious and thirsty for better understanding the kinds of discussions that were taking place around what, what's called the complicity of planning with colonialism. So I engaged at the time, early my PhD, trying to do within the scope of a course what you can mm -hmm. do in terms of a lead review and getting a better sense of yeah the main discussions that were taking place and what started happening at that time given the well the the context and the limitations of that what you can achieve in a course is that it started to become apparent to me um, that there were different ways in which people's different authors were talking about the idea of decolonizing planning or what this complicity of planning with processes of colonial dispossession look like mm -hmm. and at the time for lack of better concepts I was like well it looks like at least maybe we can identify three different ways in which people refer to the notion of how planning can be decolonized even if that possibility exists one of them is what I call like an um, ethics based mm -hmm. approach but in in other words people who are really looking at um planner subjectivity and self-reflection mm -hmm. and in in the the notion of decolonization being more of an internal process to the planner, if you wish, particularly mm -hmm. for non-Indigenous peoples. And mm -hmm. um, then there were other people who were much more concerned with substantive rights and what does it mean from the perspective of um, access to land and to territory or to, again, rights of Indigenous peoples being acknowledged and, and that kind of conversation. Um, and then other people were more again, for lack of better concepts at the time, mm -hmm. um, it, it was more of a discursive practice, practice if you wish. So there were, no, I, I, I'm not saying semantic discussions, um, but, but it was like, well, what does it mean to, to change the ways in which we think and, and mm. the narrative of planning also, if you wish, yeah. or historiography. Um, and well, at the time, as I say, I was reviewing what, what I found to be available as someone coming from other disciplines. Um, and then as it always happens, I mean, this is an important paper for me because it's the first thing I ever published. Yeah. But as such also, um, my thinking about planning and decolonization and the relationship between planning and indigenous dispossession has changed substantially too. So it will forever be a, my, an important paper because it's the first one, but at the same time, um, yeah, it helped me think in different ways mm -hmm. in the future too. Yeah, and then walk us through what, planning's roots are in colonialism historically, but also, as you say, today? Um, well, well, there are, I think I've been quite influenced for, by a number of scholars, particularly who are more in planning history, um, who, in a way, when you look at the way in which um, planning is described as a profession, so we tend to think of planning as a professional practice that consolidated sometime around maybe the um, in the 18th century or the 19th century, actually, mm -hmm. um, in, you know, influenced by ideas of the Enlightenment and then uh, it, 
technological advances and the industrial revolution and all the changes that came as a result of this explosion in urban growth that was mm -hmm. possible only because of changes in technology and in transportation and mobility, you know, and cities being bigger and all the problems that came up with that, like sanitization and overcrowding and pollution. Mm -hmm. So planning, it's always portrayed as a discipline that emerges as a response to this crisis of the industrial city of the 19th century. And that's, of course, there's quite a lot of truth to that, particularly when we think about um, planning as a professional practice or what started to become a professional practice over time. But then when we think about planning in terms of um, as a practice of social spatial organization of, in a way, managing or negotiating or engaging with the relationship between humans and the environment, um, living beings and other living beings. Of course, planner, planning has happened since time immemorial, right? Mm -hmm. um, but the key thing, this notion of the complicity of planning with colonialism is that um, when, particularly in the Americas, when, when European explorers, so-called explorers started to, <laughs> to come here and encounter these quotation marks, newly discovered territories. Mm -hmm. um, the tools and the mechanisms that were used by those um, early explorers were the tools that we now call planning tools. Mm -hmm. So in order, colon colonialism um, as a, as a um, colonialism as an ideology or as a project and colonization as a process of actually acquiring and invading and annex taking over other people's territory it's mm -hmm. essentially a territorial project and that happened at least in the context of the americas but also in what's now australia and new zealand and in other parts of the world and it happened through tools that we now call planning tools like which ones like um measuring the landing land use the land, planning, <laughs> land use planning. Mm -hmm. uh, well of course the the connection there between geography and planning it's kind of like hard to detangle but uh, producing maps you know cartographic tools uh, town building um, renaming places that had like mm -hmm. names, indigenous names for a long time. So some scholars like Libby Porter in Australia or well, Leonie Sandercock in the Australian context, but also in Canada, as well as many indigenous scholars like the Hohola and um, Hirini Matunga have made that connection very explicit that actually the, these tools that we now call planning tools are the same tools that enabled colonial processes to take place in the first place. And in that sense, we can speak of planning as a, as a practice that it's inherently colonial, at least in the way in which we understand it here in Canada, for instance. Yeah, it seems like it's also ongoing and the process of colonialism is embedded within our systems and reinforces day in, day out with every plan, uh, those historical roots in colonialism. Absolutely, because they, if, if we think about it, I mean, there, there's always this discussion between, oh, but there are so many countries who are no longer colonies in the sense of depending formally from a metropolis, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And that's true. And we can, in a way, have this uh, illusion that because there's no formal colonialism, there's no colonial dynamics. And that's where the concept of some scholars like Pablo Gonzalez Casanova, for instance, who's a Mexican scholar, who talks about the idea of internal colonialism. Um, by that, what he means is that, well, it's true, like a particular country might have become independent, um, politically speaking from a metropolis, but all the systems and institutions and kind of like underlying structures continue to be the same. Yeah. And they, they only change um, from one hand to the other, if you wish, the colonial authorities to the newly, in the case of Chile, which is my home country, where most of my research space to the hands of the Republican government. But mm -hmm. again, the logic and the mentality are the same. But then most importantly, land has never been returned. And, and well, colonialism is a, it's a territorial project and has been made possible by planning, among other disciplines, of course. Yeah. Um, in addition to the territorial dimension, of course, there's education and imposing a new language. And there are a number of like other social planning tools, if you wish. But from the purely land-based approach or land-based perspective, um, land has been never been returned, has never been returned. So from that perspective, it's really hard to speak of a of a decolonized planning practice. Maybe I'm, yeah. maybe I'm jumping ahead, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we can move on to that next question, sort of 
walk us through what you mean by reconciliation discourse. Um, what does it mean to have a reconciliation discourse or at all? I think of um, like in Australia, the government saying sorry for all of the things that their government has done, um, but also not giving any land back or um, doing anything except say sorry. Yeah, no, thank you. That's that's a great question. It's a very controversial term, actually. I am personally highly critical and skeptical of the notion of reconciliation, particularly in the way in which it's taken shape and place here in Canada. So the, the idea of reconciliation... Um, it's well, it's interesting for a number of reasons. I mean, it, it implies to begin with the the possibility of reconciling something and, and to bringing together in a way, um, which is in itself kind of like a questionable assumption to start. But then particularly, I think here in the Canadian context, when people talk about reconciliation uh, in the way in which the government has managed and used the concept, um, it's over time, it's become meaningless. And I've heard so many and I've read from so many First Nations, Indigenous scholars and community members and advocates here in Canada, how um, without returning land, without engaging with discussions about land restitution, um, it's really hard to talk about reconciliation because anything that happens without engaging with the territorial dimension, um, it's in a way nothing more than, well, um, words, if you wish. If, if, if discussions about reconciliation are not tied to discussions about land, um, we're talking about not going to the root of, of what colonization is about. Mm -hmm. So, and here in Canada, I think there's something particularly problematic, which is the clear double standard that the government has shown. Mm. On the one hand, trying to make public announcements and, and at a narrative discursive level, speaking mm. about relation and nation to nation relations with indigenous peoples. And then on the other, actively pursuing, for instance, um, really destructive natural resource projects like pipelines, like mining projects that are in a way incompatible with a discourse around reconciliation and, uh, and particularly when we understand reconciliation as inherently tied to land restitution and to pe indigenous people's sovereign authority um, mm. to decide and, and take part in discussions about, uh, about land and how land should be used. So I am very, um, again, like skeptical. I think mm. the maybe at a societal level, discussions about reconciliation um, can play some sort of role. You, you might be familiar with the Truth and Reconciliation of Canada, mm -hmm. the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada um, that, that worked for a number of years, set up by the, by the Canadian government as a response to years and years of social mobilization by Indigenous communities, particularly regarding uh, the Indian residential school system. Mm -hmm. um, and the commission worked for a number of years, produced a substantive report on the impacts of the Indian residential school system um, well, in Canada and indigenous peoples, and then made a 94 calls to action. That spanned from like changes in curriculum and education to um, discussions that are more political um, at different levels, of course, for education institutions like universities. And there are action actions there that, that are relevant. So don't get me wrong that I think there can be some, some use, but the thing is that if all those conversations happen without engaging whatsoever with the discussion mm -hmm. about land, yeah. um, it will be always um, insufficient. But particularly the double standard in the government of Canada, we, we've seen over the past couple of years um, in BC, for instance, in northern BC, people opposing the pipelines who actually the government sends the um, the RCMP and yeah. actually disrupting and, and injunction, injunctions mm -hmm. um, to remove people from their territories, land protectors. So um, you cannot be talking about reconciliation if you are at the same time arresting peaceful protesters yeah. while defending the land. Exactly. Yeah, you can't be talking about reconciliation with someone when you go out and do the exact same thing time and time again. It's as if exactly. they didn't get the point. Exactly. And then the rest of Canada sees, oh, well, you know, we have our Truth and Reconciliation Act and we've done the job of acknowledging the problems, but without any actual, there's call to action, but not 
action. <laughs> It'll just be the call. Exactly. So then in reconciliation and um, whatever, you know, term we want to use, what about decolonizing? Perhaps reconciliation will just should be called decolonizing because that would be how to reconcile <laughs> is uh, take away the practices that are reinforced um, in our day-to-day -day lives and in our country and um, actually make good. But what does that look like? I thank you for asking the question because I think this is one of the questions where that are in a way implicit in the in the article that we're taking as a starting point for this conversation that I wrote several several years ago, um, which which I think one of the ways in which my own thinking has changed is the absolutely not taking for granted the notion that there exists that a possibility exists for something like a decolonized planning. So if planning is inherently colonial and if colonialism and colonization are about land dispossession, mm -hmm. almost by default, decolonization of planning or decolonization of social relations more broadly should be about land restitution to begin with. And in that sense, as long as that doesn't happen, in a way, my thinking right now is that a fully decolonized planning practice is not even possible. Mm -hmm. And perhaps that's not clear. That wasn't clear to me at the time I was writing that article. Mm. Um, so I'm I'm skeptical of the possibility of decolonizing planning. At the same time, I think it's like um, it's like utopia. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Eduardo Galeano, an Uruguayan author who wrote The Open Veins of Latin America, said, "Well, what's utopia about? It's like the horizon. So once you give one step and it moves farther away, but what's the purpose of utopia? It's actually to keep you moving and keep you walking, keep you making progress, like trying to get closer." Interesting. Um, so I, in a way, I believe that the the notion and the at least trying to engage with discussions about a decolonizing project in planning are important mm -hmm. because not having them, it's worse than. Um, having them. I mean, there, there's merit in, in engaging, in training planners who are aware of the historical roots of planning, training planners, and, and, and having professionals, and also having, well, instructors, right, and teachers who are, um, yeah, critical of these complicities and these relationships, and who can begin in everyday practice, even in smaller decisions, changing uh, what planning looks like mm -hmm. who gets to the table and uh, what kinds of priorities and visions are brought forward uh, the well the engagement with the idea that indigenous peoples have been planning since time immemorial so what does it mean for contemporary professional planners to um, acknowledge and, and engage with with indigenous forms of planning right mm -hmm. and without fear of like losing the role of the expert or of finding your own professional training being uns unsettled so i believe at this point and uh, sorry and to jump to another important idea is that i think different people have different roles to play in these discussions about decolonizing planning there are many other um there are indigenous scholars, for instance, who talk also about the need of indigenizing planning. And, and decolonizing and indigenizing might be two separate, but in mm. a way related projects as well. So decolonization in a way implies the possibility of trying to undo or unsettle on, or dismantle colonial structures and dynamics. Mm -hmm. And then indigenizing on the other hand, but related might be a process that's more about um, well, indigenous peoples, in a way, taking the well, taking lead and expanding and growing. Mm -hmm. um, well, the the ways of doing planning that they have been exercising in and putting forward and advancing since well, time immemorial. So, yeah. and, and and who has which role? So, myself as a non-indigenous person, for instance, I find that I'm. Maybe my responsibility is more along the lines of trying to undo and dismantle and unsettle and criticize and challenge mm -hmm. colonial practices and structures and make that mm -hmm. visible and try to transform uh, planning systems and shedding light. While on the other hand, working in alliance or um, trying as much as possible to put my work at the service of indigenous priorities. Mm -hmm. And then indigenous peoples, well, they have been doing planning and they, they are, again, sovereign nations 
um, full of knowledge and they, mm-hmm. and they of course will move forward on their own agendas. Are there spaces for indigenous agendas and, and whatever I might be able to contribute to their agendas to overlap and intersect? I believe so. Um, and maybe that's kind of the work I'm trying to, I've been trying to do over the mm-hmm. past decade since I started writing that article. Yeah, so it's almost, you know, our role as non-Indigenous people is to decolonize our planning practices and make space for others, but then, you know, alongside the indigenization of planning. So they almost need to work in tandem because you need to make space for others in the room and for other planning practices, knowledges, ways of knowing um, in order to come together at the table. Yeah, and, and I think there is also a, one of the things that maybe has characterized planning particularly in its very rational, comprehensive kind of like um, paradigm or mentality that, ha- that dominated or has dominated mm-hmm. um, planning practice for so long. It's this kind of like arrogance, right? Of yeah. the, almost like the need for, for someone to make decisions and to take control and, and, and this inability to to engage or to acknowledge the coexistence of multiple ways of, again, as you were saying, of knowing, of planning. And, and, and in that sense, I mean, the, yeah, Western mainstream planning systems, um, maybe there are also at least two agendas there. So it's mm-hmm. one, try to transform those planning systems, but then the other, it's to develop what some scholars have called like cultural humility, like take a step down. Like it's like there are peoples and communities and nations who have approaches to planning that might intersect with mainstream Western uh, approaches like the ones the government leads. Mm -hmm. Um, And there might be substantially different on other fronts. And that's that's maybe where the... um, it's not only making space for mm-hmm. other forms of planning, but it's because the, in, in the notion of making space for something or opening up or integrating, there's still that kind of Power. supremacy yes, if you wish, yes. of the Western planning system yeah. that's mm-hmm. opening up and making room for something else, yeah. as opposed to saying, actually, we don't have to make room for anything. I mean, the, the other forms of planning exist and have existed all the way around. Mm-hmm. We haven't been able to to acknowledge and, and, and not be arrogant, to say there are other ways of doing this, why should we be imposing? So I think it's also an exercise in humility. Yeah, yeah. I think of like different paternalistic planning um, and colonizing <laughs> uh, forms of planning in terms of it's always this parent role right, is that planning mm-hmm. has deemed itself as the expert, the knowledge holder um, going into this sort of family or community and saying, no, 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 kid, you need to do that. I know what's best. And if you question me, why? Because I said so, right? It's not even a question of changing. It's just, no, I know what's best for you and you will do that. Mm-hmm. And actually, I mean, it's, um, I'm happy that you frame it that way, because one of the, I always show my students in one, in most of my classes, there is a very interesting, interesting in the sense of like powerful and revealing mm. excerpt from a report from the you know, Ministry of Interior of Canada in the late 1700s, early 1800s, that describes in a way very clearly the approach that the government of Canada at the time was taking in its relation with Indigenous peoples. And that relationship is marked by this notion of guardianship. Yes. But this assumption that for whatever reason, the government of Canada and the Crown had the authority and the power um, and the superiority mm-hmm. to actually engage with Indigenous peoples in a very hierarchical, uh, paternalistic way. Yeah. And that's the foundation of the planning institutions in Canada and of government institutions in Canada to this day. Despite changes, constitutional changes, despite um, the evolution of some, again, institutions and legislation, um, that remains the foundation of the way in which the government of Canada, the Crown, interacts with Indigenous peoples. Mm -hmm. And planning reproduces that. So what you're describing, it's precisely that. It's um, um, a very paternalistic approach that I think... um, 
only only reinforces what I'm calling like yeah colonial dynamics. So becoming at least aware, I think, is the first step, yeah. particularly for younger generations of planners. Mm-hmm. And and from then and from there, it might be possible to begin to make change again in in systems. And by systems, I mean both institutions, procedures, legislation, and again tools and ways of doing things, but also more deeply. And that's also where the education system comes in and changes in subjectivity and in consciousness in terms of what this historical acknowledgement means Mm -hmm. for, yeah, for what the relationship between indigenous and non-indigenous peoples might look like in a place like Canada. Mm -hmm. So then walk us through the purpose of this research. I know you spoke about previously about this ethics-based planning and then a rights-based approach um, to planning, maybe delve into that a bit more yeah so as as I mentioned at the beginning when when, at least when that article was written many years ago my my main purpose was as someone new to to the planning field particularly in the North America case gain myself a better understanding of what kinds of discussions were taking place um so that was it it was a really non-ambitious purpose in that sense I think the the underlying concern for me was more um by acknowledging this complicity of planning with colonial processes of indigenous dispossession what what does it mean for someone like me what does it mean for the practice and for professional planners in a place like Canada or for that matter any other place with a colonial history um, and in that sense in terms of what the I think the purpose of it connects maybe also to the implications in a way mm. in the sense of um, if we begin to engage in these conversations uh, again what, what kinds of um, skills do planners need yes. to begin to engage with these conversations and um, there's clearly a need for a reframe planning historiography mm-hmm. maybe a rewriting planning history there is a need for um yeah at a deeper level kind of like develop developing hu- what i call a humility mm-hmm. like an attitude that's that moves away from the belief that planners are experts and decision makers who, who know best. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also, of course, other skills like the ability to, to the, well, discussions about mediation and facilitation mm-hmm. and, and ability to engage in conversations that by definition involve deep-rooted conflict. Mm-hmm. All of these things become much more important when you acknowledge this relationship mm-hmm. between or or the what some other scholars have called the dark side of planning yeah. how planning that we'd like to think about as a progressive practice actually has been pretty instrumental in yeah in oppressing and dispossessing quite openly mm-hmm. certain communities mm-hmm. sometimes it's a bit more covert but um, in many cases it's quite quite openly I mean what what else can the reservation system be what else can I don't know redlining uh, policies be about they are open explicit segregation Mm -hmm. or exclusionary or oppressive practices and there's no other way around it Mm -hmm. (laughs) um so yeah I think that in terms of the purpose as I said there is a distinction between the paper itself Mm -hmm. it was uh, maybe selfish exercise in becoming more familiar with discussions and trying to see patterns. Yeah, but then in terms of where that has taken me over time, I think the, the, the key concern for was what does this acknowledgement mean for planning practice and also for ways of thinking planning theory and history. And that, that's been kind of like the main trajectory of the thinking. Mm-hmm. And then what are some of those things? So there's this humility and practice and humility, but how do you approach planners to then say, okay, this is a different set of rules that you need, you should probably abide by or things that you should consider in the planning process. So how do you, how would you approach planners um, to do some of this sort of work? Well, I think there, there's much that can be accomplished, at least beginning, it's planting the seed, right? Like in the classroom. So mm. when, yeah. when you, in your history classes, expose students to, well, to perhaps like a counter history of planning practice, when you start to engage from year one, uh, where people read and listen from and, and learn from indigenous practitioners, indigenous planners, but yeah. also community members who do planning work. Um, yeah. and, and reading that material. So the who, who students get to listen to and learn from, it's key. 
We know that mm. money history has been overwhelmingly dominated by, uh, well, white middle-aged men um, from probably European ancestry. And when you look at books and when you look at planning syllabi, you see that overwhelming kind of like bias. And it's not that yeah. hard, actually, to begin to engage. There are so many people doing such powerful work. It's a matter for us as instructors to to do our homework and to become familiar and to, in a way, grow and expand and diversify and challenge also mainstream narratives. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I believe that by beginning to do that from year one, I mean, well, if, I, if someone comes fresh out of high school, um, it's not the same to read a very conventional set of readings for your history class then engage mm-hmm. with broader perspectives to begin with mm-hmm. then i think it, on the realm of like skills development again there are many schools that have these um, courses on what some people call softer skills which i don't think are soft at all yeah <laughs> like, like, they're actually again, much harder to delve into <laughs> exactly mm-hmm. like how how might it be possible to engage meaningfully and respectfully mm-hmm. in, in in contexts that are intercultural and this is not only necessarily with indigenous peoples but generally yes. we live in societies that are much more diverse what does it mean mm-hmm. to yeah to to be able to participate and ideally facilitate those kinds of conversations yeah I think of the same thing in like transportation and housing, all of these, you know, different groups coming together and it being such a good skill to be able to connect with Mm -hmm. all right, wide range of people. Exactly. And then I think there's also the, well, the, the thing is that by, by bringing these discussions to the fore, which is the work that indigenous peoples and indigenous planners have been doing for a long time basically yeah. to, to mobilize and to make these things visible and that has been echoed by non-indigenous planners also who have engaged in these conversations um, mm-hmm. it is relevant because actually institutional change also begins to happen in that direction I don't know if you're familiar yeah. or the audience familiar but the the Canadian Institute of Planners for instance has been working they, they there is a working group that was established some years ago there have some reports and internal work that has been done um, in terms of exploring this this really these mm-hmm. complicities um, and yeah. seeing and evaluating what does it mean for a professional practice like planner like like planning when there is a code of ethics where there are notions or understandings of the public interest where planners should be learning certain skills and being exposed to certain basic knowledge that everyone should have and what that looks like well it hasn't it has implications so the fact that these conversations are also beginning to happen within these super conventional mainstream institutions yes. um, it's it's a good sign at the same time there's mm-hmm. always the risk for the same thing that happens with reconciliation yes. discourse yes. happening mm-hmm. and that's where we need to keep an eye and also this is work that indigenous peoples have been covering and leading and pushing for for like decades yeah. if not mm-hmm, centuries mm-hmm. um but then and that happens on different fronts mm-hmm. so i think well, something that i often see happen i think when i sometimes have conversations with family members or whatever yeah. some people get kind of like paralyzed oh my god but if this is a discussion about you know, land restitution what happens if that we cannot achieve that mm-hmm. so so the conversation quickly ends in okay so what does it mean does it mean that everyone has to go back to europe and not <laughs> engaging that kind of thing yeah. you're right away yeah. not opening to the depth of the conversation mm-hmm. and to and to listening yeah. so and that's also where the humility piece comes in mm-hmm. yes yeah, I can think of all different uh, conversations where that can happen in this, seeing it as this sort of binary where it, it either is your life or someone else's life. It's very individualistic and pretty much against any way of thinking about Indigenous planning whatsoever, right? Is this not, it's going beyond thinking about the individual or just your family unit that we're so, that's pretty colonial, <laughs> right? Instead going to yes. towards a more community um, perspective and thinking about the other um, and engaging with each other in a much more communicative way. Yes. So uh, yeah, I think there, there's so much that needs to be done, particularly by um 
well, by no, by non-indigenous peoples in general, and we're talking about planning. So, by non-indigenous planners in particular, um, in the first place, in terms of yeah, doing our homework. I think learning learning more about history it's it's always a good start. But then, mm. once you become more familiar with histories that we're not um, using and know about, uh, there yeah. comes also responsibility and mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and accountability, if you wish, in a way. Because mm-hmm. when once you see something, it's really hard to unsee it. Um, and what does it mean for your practice, right? Do you are you willing to engage in in the hard work or not? Mm-hmm. I even think of you know some of the ways in which planners can be so in tune with all of you know everything that you're talking about, but still operating in an institution that stops them from engaging with everyone or has a different timeline than the rest of the community. I um, was listening to a talk where um, an Indigenous woman stated that, you know, we're not on your colonial, you know, white supremacist timeline. Like, we're not following your timeline. We need time to think about the implications for our community and for taking it to, um, you know, our leaders and elders and talking it through. And it's not as easy as coming to this meeting and saying, yep, that sounds good. It's much more of a deep and thoughtful process of decision making. Yes, no, I think that's, um, yeah, I wonder if you can later send me that <laughs> that interview that you were listening <laughs> yes. to, but I think yes, it's, yes, um, yes. It's mm-hmm. well, and that's also what I'm saying. I think there there are different ways in which we can, um, in a way, engage engage with that question. And uh, mm-hmm. one is that, of course, um, I mean, planning systems need to change, and I think yeah. some of them have been changing in small ways, um, like baby steps that sometimes do point in the in the right direction, even though they might not be yet reaching the hardcore conversations about land restitution um, but there mm. are there are some changes there are changes to um again planning regulation there are yep. um, practices that are innovative i don't know and, and conversations that the the work of first nations um in a way push the the system push the system mm-hmm. um yeah. in, in in solid directions but well, and, and another key way in which we can engage in these conversations, um, it's that indigenous peoples are leading planning work, um, either through or in relation to government planning or on their own. And planners are very um, welcome in a way to see and uh, if there are opportunities for them to work to support those Indigenous agendas and the work that Indigenous peoples themselves are leading. I know a number of people who are not necessarily Indigenous planners themselves who are working for First Nations communities, who are hired by bands, for instance, to support uh, their comprehensive community planning efforts or to work on lands or to work on environmental protection or community engagement or community health, you name it. Um, perhaps not all yeah. indigenous communities or nations or bands are looking for non-indigenous planners to join their teams, but there are clearly so many ways in which non-indigenous planners yeah. can work, if you wish, outside of the margins of more conventional positions in planning, which are the ones we can imagine, oh, like a consultancy firm mm-hmm. or working with government or with a municipality or yeah. you know, there are many spaces and particularly the more we expand the definition of planning, uh, the more we realize that the realm where planners can make a contribution, it's really broad, much more, much broader than maybe we think. Definitely. Um, so working under the lead of indigenous communities who are leading their own planning work. Um, it's what I see more and more younger planners also interested in, which again, it's kind of like maybe a shift in consciousness as yeah. well and saying, well, I'm, I'm in a planning school, I'm learning particular skills mm-hmm. and I can bring some, some elements and some knowledge to the table that can be useful for different groups of people, including indigenous communities. Am I committed to this and am I willing to put my skills and my knowledge at the service of this community and the work they're leading? And if the answer is yes, 
Well, in the same way that if you were interested, I don't know, in transportation planner, you might uh, transportation planning, you might go and scope out the kinds of job opportunities that you think would be suitable for you. Yeah. If you are interested in and committed to indigenous planning or to and doing as much as possible colonial practices within planning systems, mm-hmm. um, you might choose to if your heart and your commitments, your political commitments are there. And this is an idea that, I don't know, in conventional planning theory, uh, Paul Davidoff yep. put forward or theorized like 40, 50 years ago, yeah. or even more now, maybe almost 60. Um, the whole notion of, well, if, if actually there are, there's no one single public interest, if there are multiple plans and multiple visions for what the future might look like in, in any context, uh, well, planners have been the space in acknowledging that that yeah. multiplicity and in bringing forward the political nature of planning um, and also the fact that planning it's deeply grounded in particular values the more you acknowledge those values uh, the easier for you as a planner it is to find the right work that fits your ethics and your agenda and your political commitments definitely um, and then what about some of the future work for research do you see what are the implications, at least from this work, it's contributed to your future work, but what about other research that you see um, that needs to be done? I think the task of, there are a number of avenues. I think the task of uh, revisiting and rewriting planning history, there's still, some authors have done amazing work, but there's of course so much to be done. There are like centuries and centuries of writing and theorizing planning theory and, 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 well, and planning practice that um, that will need much more revisiting, if you wish. Um, so that's, I think, one key piece of work. I think the the engaging in in what land restitution means. Um, it, it's perhaps the key component. Um, th- there's this really important article that probably we should all read by um, Ibtak and Wen Yang called decolonization is not a metaphor, which I think the title in itself captures. So anyone interested in a potential decolonization of planning should read, well, that article as well as article by author, other important uh, scholars, even with, with outside the formal um, boundaries of planning, like Leanne Simpson or Glenn Coulthard, who are really uh, talking about indigenous resurgence and, and land and connections to land and how any discussion about um, decolonization needs to start from the question of land. So I think that that's an agenda um, that indigenous peoples are leading, but mm-hmm. of course there is a role for non-indigenous scholars also to, to engage in what the question of land means um, for the way we think about planning. And I think very importantly, which I think it's where I have in a way tried to move my work, it's in terms of research, it's like maybe it's not up to me to fully decide what research should look like. But if I am committed to trying to advance or contribute to indigenous agendas, um, it's my role to come forward and say, well, this is, this is who I am. These are the kinds of skills or resources I might contribute. Um, is there any agenda you're trying to move forward where my skills and my, mm-hmm. um, the resources I'm able to mobilize can be helpful? Um, and that might mean that people say, yes, you know, actually we were looking forward to mm-hmm. um, engaging in community-based research around this topic or this topic. Um, are you willing to work with us? And what that means, well, they set the conditions. Mm-hmm. We need money, of course, because no research can be done without money. Yeah. And we're interested in, in researching this question. So mm-hmm. the work I am doing now um, with partners in Indigenous Mapuche partners in Chile Mm-hmm. tries to follow in a way that uh, that approach. Mm-hmm. I, I come from planning. I'm located within a planning school. I'm located at a Canadian uh, educational institution, which means that there are some resources or skills or knowledge that I might be able to contribute. And they range from knowledge of history, in this case, um, both in Spanish and English, of history of planning, um, planning systems, planning theory and there's mm. also of 
course, the possibility to contribute through curriculum development and teaching in the classroom, revisiting yeah. the way I teach, the kind of content. Mm-hmm. And there's, of course, the mobilization of research resources, research grants, um, hiring research assistants, applying for funding that can help advance certain agendas. Mm-hmm. So the kind of work we are doing now, it started from that assumption. I mean, this is where who I am and what I can bring is this useful and we are working on a project that's around um, indigenous land use planning, Mapuche land use planning, always with a view of land restitution as being the ultimate goal. Um, And we're doing so through a combination of um, approaches and methods Mm -hmm. from participatory mapping to walks and explorations on the land to preliminary cartographic work, like mapping the territory um, and helping also put together or improve this um, report that indigenous communities need to put together when they submit land claims. Um, Mm -hmm. And in a way, the research we're doing follows uh, what they they expressed that they needed. They wanted to deepen certain knowledge of the land. needed to strengthen these legal cartographic reports, anthropological reports they had so mm-hmm. that they could have that knowledge to, well, use it for their strategic purposes. Mm-hmm. And they really wanted to engage the elders and gather some of the stories and the knowledge that mm-hmm. they hold in their language that might get lost and it's at the risk of being lost uh, when elders pass away. And in a way, the project it's answering those questions and trying to move forward those agendas. Interesting how your perspective of research is changing the kind of research that you're doing. So typically, you know, a research project or a question is born out of gaps in literature and what we haven't done yet and what, you know, we haven't commented on, but instead changing it and changing the power. So you're sort of humility as a researcher and saying, you know, I don't have all the answers. Let's ask the community what they actually want and then seek the project from there. Yeah, no. And and I think that that's a good point. I mean, academic institutions have been at the forefront of also helping forge forward this um, colonial processes that we were t- talking about earlier on. Totally. So land use, like I think of histories of anthropology exactly. and things like exactly. that. And mm-hmm. Some disciplines much more than others, like anthropology and the health sciences and education and planning and geography. Maybe the connections with colonial processes of indigenous disposition are so direct and so obvious. And some of them had been more openly criticized. Um, but even be that beyond specific disciplines, uh, universities and academic institutions have been, by definition, um, the centers of knowledge production, invisibilizing yeah. and ignoring other sources and kinds of knowledge. There's been this mm-hmm. super arrogant attempt at the, this is how knowledge should be produced. This is what counts as knowledge. And these are the people who produce knowledge. And these are the subjects who are studied and that allow the knowledge to be extracted and produced. And yeah. that continues to be the case, but I think there's uh, there are more critical perspectives now. And there is an opportunity to, in a way, subvert, in a way from inside, the role that academic institutions can play. And, and this is one small way, even though academic institutions might never be fully, I mean, they, it's really hard to undo historical trajectories, right? And where academic institutions were born of. But it is possible to change um, to change practices mm-hmm. and to change um, again dynamics. And in that sense, the trying as much as possible to mobilize the potential of academic institutions at the service of other agendas that maybe were not really thought about in the past. I think it's it's one one possibility, um, and and it includes or it it goes hand in hand with what you were saying. The shifting the where do research questions come from in the first place? What's understood by research? What, what kind of methods are deemed valid or not? Perhaps, I don't know, um, a couple or some decades or a couple hundred years ago, and participatory action research wasn't even a thing. Yeah. Or, you know, like um, arts-based research. There, there are so many things that were not even considered because it was such a narrow definition. Mm-hmm. And there's still, yes, exactly. there is a narrow definition mm-hmm. in general about what research is and should be about. Yep. But the, the, the what kinds of questions are answered 
um, who asks those questions and whose agendas are advanced by answering those questions. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's a key space that can be explored and that many people are actually exploring. Indigenous scholars and other people interested and committed to community-based research. Great. Yeah, I totally echo all of those points. <laughs> I, I think that was that's a great way to end this podcast, Magda. I would like to thank you so much for coming on and discussing with us today. Um, are there any other questions or comments that you wanted to get in before we end? No, just thanking you again, Becca, for yeah, for the invitation, for um, leading and making space for these conversations and for yeah, for all your comments and for the dialogue, which I really enjoyed. And I, I really hope that uh, everything we've discussed might um, interest the people who are listening to the podcast and, and we mm-hmm. can continue to grow these conversations and most importantly, um, these different ways of thinking about planning and of practicing planning once we begin to think about these connections between planning mm-hmm. as a practice and indigenous dispossession as a process that ha- has been imposed on indigenous peoples, but also most importantly, um, indigenous ways of planning and the ways that indigenous peoples have been planning and continue to plan and are leading the way in terms of um, how we should understand the relationship between uh, us as human beings and communities and, and the environments we live in and how we're part of those environments and, and not um, superior kind of being that that's that has power and control over but that actually we, we we're part and, and we should be striving to mm-hmm. to keep and continue that that, mm-hmm. that balance that ensures uh, the possibility of life itself so thank you again well thank you so much <laughs> all right i'll say bye bye That's it for now, and thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to read Magda's paper, please see the link in the show notes. Be sure to share and subscribe for updates on future episodes. Feel free to contact me on Twitter at DenseCityPod to keep the conversation going. A special thanks to Emily Huang of Watercolored by Emily for creating the artwork for this podcast. You can check out more of her work by following the link in the show notes. Another thank you to Reed Kai and Ryan Kinnear for the show music. See you next time on Dense City.